Amen, amen. Well, I want to encourage you to turn with me in your Bibles to Micah chapter 5. Micah chapter 5, as we continue our Promise Keepers series. And uh, last week I used a little analogy that uh, some of you mentioned was helpful for you, so maybe I'll just repeat that analogy by way of a refresher today. Um, What we're doing in this series is we're walking through this thread of promise that we find in the Old Testament, reminding ourselves that though often there's a delay, our God is in fact a promise keeper. And the promise that we're tracking goes all the way back to the very beginning. Everything that is wrong with the world today, everything that's wrong with your life today, is the result of sin. Everything. All of it. Sin is what has corrupted the whole thing. And so the, the question is, how do we solve it? How do we fix this? I, don't, I seem powerless to fix the sin in my own life. The things that I don't want to do, I do. And the things I do, I don't do. As Paul says in Romans 7, what's the solution? Well, God says He's, he's going to send a solution. That's the first promise we considered. And so as we looked in Genesis 3, God made a promise that He was going to send a champion. And as we look for the fulfillment of the promise, I used the analogy last week of a dartboard. So if you can picture a dartboard in your mind. In Genesis 3, we learn that this coming champion is going to be born of a woman. So he's, he's going to be a human, and that's our target. We're looking for a human. Well, in Genesis 12, 1-3, we learn that this human is going to be born to Abraham and Sarah. He's going to be a descendant from them, and they become the nation of Israel. So this one we're looking for is going to be from the nation of Israel. And then last week, we saw in 2 Samuel 7 that within the nation of Israel, this, this coming champion, this one who would bring blessing instead of curse, would be a descendant of, of David, and he would be an heir to the throne. And so from that moment forward in the Old Testament, all eyes are on the throne. We're watching for the king who's going to come to set his people free. And you think, man, we can't get any closer to the center. But ah, we we can. And in Micah chapter 5, we we do come closer. In this passage, we kind of like we're getting now right to the center of the center of the bullseye. In this promise, we learn something of the where this Messiah will come and, and when he will come and how he will come. And so we're going to look to the promise today and we're going to consider it. But as we do that, we're going, to do, we're going to add an extra element today because we're four weeks into this series, which means that we now have the benefit of, of tracking some of the patterns of the way that God works with his people. And those patterns that we... <coughs> forgive me, that's going to happen a few times today. Those patterns that we track in the text, not only do they apply in the Bible, but they apply in our lives as we will readily see. So that's, that's the plan. Before we jump in... I want to ask for the Lord's help for us today. So if you would just bow with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we love you. And we thank you for your word. God, I thank you that the truths that we find here are not just truths of yesterday, but they're truths for today and truths for tomorrow. God, your word is is a light to our feet. God, I pray that today you would open our eyes to see truths that perhaps we haven't seen before. Lord, that today you would bring into clarity things that perhaps have been fuzzy and muddled in our lives. Uh, Lord, we've heard the wisdom that the world has to offer. Lord, we, we swim in that all day long, every day. And we come here today humbly saying, we need to hear from you. We need your wisdom. We need your truth. We need your light to cut through the noise of our lives. Lord, to bring us back onto the straight and narrow path that leads to life. So God, we look to your word with great confidence. Your word goes forth. It never returns void. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. We hold to those promises, Lord, and we look with great expectation. Speak now, we pray, in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. I hope you have your Bible open to Micah chapter 5. We're going to read from verses 1 to 5. Hear now God's holy, inspired, inerrant, 
living and active word to us today. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod, they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. And he shall be their peace. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So let me give you a bit of a refresher so that you can understand the context of what we've just read. If you were with us last week when we were in 2 Samuel 7, you remember that David, when he received that promise, was living in a time of great peace and prosperity. He was standing in his palace. He's looking out over his nation and they have peace on every border. They have secured the promised land and things are looking bright for the future. Well, here we're fast forwarding 300 years. Okay, 300 years in the future, we find this prophet Micah. And what's his situation like? Well, it's pretty much the opposite of King David's situation. He is not enjoying peace. The northern tribes have been wiped out and they are under siege. In fact, if you look at verse 1, look back again at verse 1, it says, Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. Most Bible scholars agree that the siege that's being referred to here was the siege of Jerusalem in 701 B.C by the Assyrian king Sennacherib. The Assyrians were, were a dangerous, formidable force. And at the time that Micah was writing, they were the world power. Uh, they would use terrorist tactics, which we're not going to get into today, but it was horrific. They, they used fear as a way to hold their power. And so they would conquer tribes and nations and clans, and then those nations and clans would pay tribute to Assyria, and if they didn't, they would horrify them and do terrible things. And with those tributes, they would then pay mercenaries to keep building up their army. And so, it seemed like an unstoppable force. The money kept coming in, which meant they kept hiring mercenaries, which, mean that, which meant that nobody could touch this powerful army. And after wiping up the northern tribes, they've now surrounded Jerusalem. This city that 300 years earlier had King David looking out over peace and wondering, you know, have the promises of God found their fulfillment? Well, Mike is seeing that no. No, they haven't. He's hearing his promise in a time of absolute desperation. But there, in his desperation, besieged by his enemies, looking like annihilation is well on its way, God picks up this thread of promise that we've been tracking. And he reminds Micah and his people that he hasn't forgot. He's still the promise keeper. So with that context in our mind, let's now turn our attention to this developing promise. And we're going to learn three things today. I mentioned... In this developing promise, we learn something of the where this Messiah will come from, and the when, and the how. So point one is is the where. We learn that this Messiah, this child of promise we've been waiting for, will come from Bethlehem. We see this in verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. The title Ephrathah, 
is the name of the district in which Bethlehem was found. There were a couple Bethlehems in Israel, but this Bethlehem, God wanted to be clear, it's Bethlehem Ephrathah. So this is as if God said he's going to come to Aurelia, Aurelia of Simcoe County. Right? That's what he's doing here. He's, he's zooming in. He's, don't make mistakes. mistake. He's going to be from right here. And that's interesting because Bethlehem was this tiny, insignificant footnote. I mean, we know Bethlehem. I assume if you're here today, you've probably heard of Bethlehem. Yes? Yeah, we've heard of Bethlehem. But boy, before they were singing about Bethlehem, before promises like this, Bethlehem was, was an, a nothing town. And that's why he says at the beginning of verse 2, he says, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah... He says that because in Joshua 15, when they're recording the, the little clans and towns of Judah, he doesn't even mention Bethlehem. It's, it's a nothing town. So why Bethlehem? I mean, this coming king, you would think that he would come to a place like Jerusalem. Jerusalem, the place where the, the temple of God has been built, the place where the palace is, the place where the nobles from the nations come. You'd think that he would come to Jerusalem. I remember we... Um, we ran these conferences back in the day when we were with First Baptist, and, and it was my job to try and procure speakers. And there was one speaker we brought in. I was really excited, and he came, and he, he did an event with us. And uh, we reached out to him the following year and said, we would love to have you again this year or next year or the year after. Could we put a date? And he, nice guy, he just said, listen, uh, I do a lot of speaking engagements, and my life is, is limited, and I, I have to say no to some things. And I can't come to a little place like Aurelia. I'm going to... I'm going to have to say no. And I just remember being devastated. But, you know, he's like, I, I, why would I come to Aurelia of all places? If I'm going to come to Canada and get into the cold, I'm going to go to Toronto, right? I can only do so many dates. And, and we get that, don't we? Well, here is, here is God in the flesh coming to his people. If anyone has a right to say, oh, I don't do the, I don't do the little stops. I come, I come to the big places. Boy, God had every right to say that, didn't he? but he comes to Bethlehem, Bethlehem Ephrathah. So the question is, why? Why would he come from Bethlehem? Well, I want to put forward two reasons. The first reason is because of a man named David. If we flip back a few pages in our Bible in 1 Samuel 16, we read, The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul? Let's pause there. Saul was the first king of Israel. Saul betrayed God, turned away from God, and so God said, I'm going to replace him. And Samuel is grieving because he's grown attached to Saul. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I've rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I've provided for myself a king among his sons. So Samuel goes to Bethlehem, and there he meets Jesse's sons, and the least of these, the shepherd boy who Jesse didn't even bother presenting to Samuel, was a little boy named David. He wasn't a little boy at the time, but an afterthought named David, and he became the king of Israel. So why then is God bringing the promise back to Bethlehem? I think God is bringing it back to where it all began. I think God is, is saying here, listen, we're going to go back to where this started. We're going to press the reset button, re reset button, because this Davidic line has defended, descended so far into sin. This Davidic line is, is so saturated in its rebellion that we, we're going to start fresh. We're going to go right to the beginning. God said something very similar through the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah 11.1 1, we read, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. So here God is saying, he's, gonna, he's chopping this dead tree down, right? And he's going to start again. 
right from the base. A little shoot is going to shoot up. Therefore, as we wait in anticipation for the arrival of the promised king, our eyes are fixated on this little town of Bethlehem. The coming king will be from Bethlehem, just like David was. That's the first thing we should see. But secondarily, I think we're also meant to see here something of this developing pattern that we've been watching over the weeks. The pattern is this. God delights to reveal His power in and through the weak, forgotten things of the world. We've seen this, haven't we? Think back to Abraham. Abraham was a nobody. Sarah was barren. David was a lowly shepherd boy. And following that pattern, as one commentator observes, the focal point now in redemptive history is none other than the insignificant town of Bethlehem. Showing that Israel's future greatness does not depend on a great human king, but on divine intervention to bring greatness out of nothing. I pray that we would learn this lesson. I I want you to just sit in this and think about this for a moment. God brings greatness out of nothing. This is how he operates. You know, we spend so much time pursuing greatness. You know, greatness according to the world's standards. You know, your idea of great, maybe what mom and dad taught you greatness is. And we try to impress each other and we put our best face on. And that's really how we conduct our lives, isn't it? Trying to be great. Trying to lean into our strengths and put them forward for the world to see. And we look at all of our weaknesses and all of our frailties and we wonder, you know, could God ever use somebody like me? Well, what kind of people does God use? Who does He use? 1 Corinthians 1.27 But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. 2 Corinthians 4.7 We have this treasure in jars of clay. Fragile jars of clay. Why? To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. 2 Corinthians 12.9-10 Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ then, I am content with weaknesses insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I wonder if we believe that. If, if I'm reading this right, then it's actually the areas where I'm most inclined to boast. <laughs> the areas that I look at in my life where I actually feel pretty proud of these areas in my life. Those are actually the areas that are going to be hindrances to my usefulness for the Lord. It's our weakness that makes us powerful in His hands. The weaknesses that we try to hide from one another are actually the cracks through which His glory shines through us. I think He loves making me preach sick. Making me stumble over my words and feel like my head is in a fog. I think He just delights in it. I wish that He did not. But He seems to. And, and all of us have these little things that we think, man, I, you know, I'd love to see this city transformed for the Gospel. I'd love to see my coworkers saved I'd love to see God do great things in the mission field abroad. I I imagine he'll probably send somebody like him over there. Gifted Bobby. Or or, or Susie over here. Look at the wonderful gifts that she has. But he certainly won't use somebody like me because who am I? Well, who does he use? It's, It's the weak. It's the foolish. It's the vulnerable. It's the fragile. Jars of clay through whom he shines his glory. Let's learn that lesson before we move on. From the insignificant, obscure, all but forgotten little town of Bethlehem, the Savior of the world will come. That's the first thing we learn in this developing promise. Second, 
This promise teaches us that the Messiah will come after a season of scattering and defeat. We see this in verse 3. Look there with me. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time. Just pause, make sure we hear that correctly. Who's the he? He is God. Therefore, he, God, shall give them. Who's them? It's his people. It's Israel. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. Meaning, God's going to give his people up for a season, allowing allowing them to suffer the painful consequences of their rebellion for a time. So remember, the people who are hearing this promise, the people who are hearing this from Micah, remember their context. They're under siege. And this siege from Assyria, you know, sometimes we don't think about how long that would have lasted, but for about 20 years, the folks in Jerusalem would have been hearing the horror stories of what was happening to these northern tribes. For 20 years, as as the tribes are being taken down one by one, and people are, are fleeing down to Jerusalem, they would have been hearing about the terrible things that Assyria was doing. The tribes of Asher, Dan, Ephraim, Gad, Issachar, Manasseh, Naphtali, Reuben, Simeon, and Zebulun, all descendants of Abraham, all fellow heirs of this promise, they've been wiped off the map at the time that this promise is heard. And the few survivors had scattered. Some of them made their way south to Jerusalem, but some of them fled north and east and west, and they were never seen again. The nation was scattered. They became a, a, a tribute nation for Assyria, and they were renamed Samaria. And now even Jerusalem, the great capital of Judah, home to the temple of God, is surrounded by the Assyrians. And Micah says, he shall give them up for a time. That's painful news, isn't it? But he says it will be only a time. The discipline will be firm, but it won't be forever. God will ultimately not allow David's line to collapse entirely because if you were with us last week, do you remember what God promised? 2 Samuel 7. Speaking of this king in the line of David, God promised, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. So now Micah is speaking to the people and he's saying, remember what God said. This is exactly the pattern. We've sinned. We've, we've fallen into, a, into an absolute mess and he's disciplining us, but his love will not depart from us. Discipline hurts, but discipline also heals. And even though it, it feels like it at the time, discipline is not the same thing as rejection. It's not. God promised that his steadfast love would not depart from his people, and he is a promise keeper. One commentator notes, Israel's humiliation is remedial, not penal. Temporary, not permanent. Because God's covenant with it is eternal. God loves his children. Therefore, God disciplines his children. And I want you to see that connection there, because that's hard for us to wrap our heads around. God loves his children. Therefore, because he loves us, he disciplines us. We see that all over the Bible. So we see that in our passage this morning but we see it in the New Testament as well. The author to the Hebrews, knowing that we're so quick to to lose sight of this, 
so quick to lose sight of the way that God works. He reminds us. He asks, have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him. Why? For the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. That word chastises is a, it's a loaded word. It's actually the Greek word carries the meaning of, of to beat with a whip or lash, which sounds an awful lot like what we saw in 2 Samuel. He says, um, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. This is, this is firm discipline. And according to the author of the Hebrews, that's what God does to every son or daughter, we could add, whom he receives. That's what God's word says to us. Now, some of us, even right now, you, you can feel yourself bucking against that. It doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem loving. But that's what God says He does to the children that He loves. And if you choose not to believe it, then the, the tribulations and the challenges you face in your life are going to send you for a tailspin. And they're going to they're leave you wondering all kinds of things about God and how He works. But He's revealing how He works to us here in His word. So hear this. Your heavenly Father... The promise-keeping God that we worship is a God who has demonstrated time and time again in Scripture that He will not sit idly by while His children descend into ruin. You might be that kind of dad, the hands-off dad who watches it all descend into chaos, but He's not that kind of dad. He loves too perfectly. He has the hard talk. He delivers the hard discipline. He uses the time out. He delivers the painful spanking. And He does it all with perfect, wise, unwavering love and faithfulness. And if you're, if I, I realize even that word spanking is a loaded word. I'm drawing that from Micah and from Hebrews. That's the language that the Bible is using to describe the way God treats us as He disciplines us. Therefore, according to the Apostle Paul, if you've put your trust in Jesus, if you are a child of God, then you have never endured a difficulty in your life that wasn't ultimately for your good. And I can say that with absolute confidence because God promises us in Romans 8.28, this familiar promise, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. All things. Hard things. Well, how hard? Like Assyrian invasion hard things. Barren wives, hard things. Babylonian exile, captivity, hundreds of years of longing and feeling like God has forgotten things. All things. Job loss things. Missed opportunity things. Rejection things. All things. Cancer things and dementia things. Death. All things for those who love God and are called according to His purpose. For your good. And He uses these seasons of darkness to tune our ears to hear His voice. To teach us lessons that we just can't learn in our prosperity. To loosen our grip on the fleeting things of this world so that we can be equipped to lay a hold of the eternal glory that waits for us. I pray that, that I would learn to say and that we would learn to say along with the, the great preacher Charles Spurgeon, who suffered from terrible depression and terrible gout all his life, he has this great quote, I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. 
You ever felt one of those waves? Something comes into your life and it just rocks you. And all that you can do in that moment is, is hold on to Christ with all that you have. Right? You were holding on to some other stuff and you were looking all other places, but the wave hits you and you've got Jesus and that's it. And Spurgeon said, oh, I have learned to kiss that wave. That wave serves a purpose and I see it. That wave hurts, but that wave is ultimately for my good and I see it. I kiss the wave. And as we learn in this passage, those waves eventually will cease. Eventually, she who is in labor will give birth, Micah says. The child of promise will come. And like a shepherd who reclaims his wayward sheep, he's going to bring back all of those who are scattered. And that leads us to the third and final lesson that we learn in this developing promise. The Messiah will shepherd his people into peace. We see this in verses 4 and 5. I want to invite you to look there with me. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Again, hear that like the people who were hearing this the first time. Surrounded by Assyria, with people sitting next to them who had already fled from the north, who are, who are trembling in fear, who remember my neighbor being slaughtered by the Assyrians. And, and Micah says, listen, he's coming, he's going to shepherd them, he's going to bring them back, he's going to restore them, and he shall be their peace. It's a glorious promise. And this imagery of a shepherd is picked up in the Old Testament, and then, of course, Jesus picks it up in the New Testament. But the expectation now for the Messiah is attached to this imagery of, of a shepherd. So that 200 years later, the prophet Ezekiel uses the same language. He says, I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. See, over the years, the Israelites experienced lots of bad leadership. In fact, that's one of the reasons why they were facing the judgment they're facing in Micah's day. In Micah 3, uh, he characterizes the leaders of his day with the imagery of cannibalism, which is not how you want to be characterized as a leader, but it fit. The leaders in Micah's day were, were using their people to the point where they were oppressing them right into the ground so that they could make themselves great and wealthy and comfortable. He says they're like cannibals, destroying the people. And, and the Israelites watched time and time again as bad shepherds rose up and led them into ruin. And you in your life have watched time and time again as bad shepherds have risen up and have abused their positions of authority. But God promises that the Messiah will come and He will be the good shepherd. He will finally and ultimately lead His people the way that they need to be led. Now this language, of course, is directing our attention back to David. That's how we, remember, that's where we met David, the shepherd boy who was defending the sheep and fighting off the, the bears with, the, with his sling and his stone. This language of a shepherd is pointing us back to David. He's saying that like David, this coming Messiah will come from Bethlehem. Like David, he'll be used by the Lord to bring together a scattered and divided people. Like David, he will shepherd his people into peace. But unlike David, this coming shepherd will reign perfectly. So what's the pattern that we are seeing here? The pattern that we're seeing here in this theme is that, that there are seasons of darkness, but that seasons of darkness give way to light. They always do. If you are in Christ, the gloom will give way to glory. That's our text for this morning. 
Circumstances are bleak. Dangers are real. The future appears uncertain. Yet even still, God says His promise stands. The child will come. From Bethlehem, a shepherd king will arise to regather those who have strayed. The champion, the blessing for the nations, the eternal king will come. Now God made this promise to Israel at the time of the Assyrian um, siege against Jerusalem, which was 701 B.C. So how long did they wait for the fulfillment of this promise? I'll give you a hint. B.C. In the preaching workshop, they said nobody's going to understand that joke. Thank you. Thank you. It's probably just because I'm sick. You're humoring me. Thank you. They waited 701 years for the fulfillment of this promise. It's a long time. Bear in mind that this promise is coming 300 years after God's promise to David in 2 Samuel 7. And that promise was coming some 700 years after God's promise to Abraham, which again is a needed reminder for those of us who are so prone to impatience that our God is, is playing the long game. He's playing the long game. And, and oftentimes we have to descend into valleys and we have to sit in the darkness for a while. And that is the pattern. But after the darkness comes the light. Wait and watch. Mark Dever has this great quote. He tells us, The present is a time of waiting. Hear that, Christian. It is a time of waiting. This is the natural posture of the Christian. A riveted, expectant, looking to God while expecting that he will while anticipating that he will fulfill all of his promises so if you feel like man my whole life has been waiting bingo yes it has and it will be that until the day comes when all of your expectation will be fulfilled and you see him in glory but for now you wait and you watch your god is a promise keeper and as we conclude this morning i just want to remind you of the way that this promise in micah 5 was fulfilled 701 years later. If, I want to invite you to flip in your Bible ahead to Luke chapter 2. And in light of the, the promise that we've just read, I want you to hear this very familiar passage afresh. Luke chapter 2. I'm going to begin in verse 8. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, Pause, just pause there. So, as you're turning, some of you still turning there. You heard the story a hundred times, right? We often just brush by the, path, the fact that he appears to shepherds. You know, do we ever think about that? Why shepherds? Why did he appear to shepherds? Is it coincidence? I mean, he could have appeared to anybody. It probably would have been appropriate for him to appear to religious leaders. For God to send the angels to the, you know, the Pharisees or the Sadducees, to the Sanhedrin, or maybe to, to some of the wealthy, prominent people of Israel. But instead, He sends it to this band of lowly shepherds out in the field. Why on earth would He do this? Is it a coincidence? Or is it because, once again, God is, is repeating this pattern that He has demonstrated all throughout the Bible, that He reveals Himself to the lowly and the forgotten. That He brings His glory and He shines it through the least of these. That God finds the people who are seated at the, at the seat of, of least honor and He moves them to a place of, of great honor. Is it a coincidence? Or is it the fact that the promise of Micah 5, the promise that a shepherd is coming, is about to be fulfilled, and who better to attest to the fulfillment of the promise than this band of shepherds to come and identify the, the shepherd of Israel who's going to gather the scattered sheep and bring them home? 
I love the way our God works. There's no story in the world like His story. Jumping back in, sorry. Second, or Luke 2, I'm going to begin at verse 8. And in the same reason, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them. The glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom He is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And with that, the shepherds made their famous trek to a little insignificant town called Bethlehem. And there, 701 years after God spoke His promise through Micah, they found the promised Messiah, the shepherd who was promised. They found Him in a manger. This shepherd king, this seed of Abraham, this promised champion who had once and for all reversed the curse has come. And he's come to bring peace, as Micah promised. But I want you to notice, peace for whom? You know, sometimes we can rush past this. Peace for whom? What did the angel say? Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. I think that's an important thing to consider as we come to a close today. Jesus came to bring peace, but it wasn't a, an indiscriminate peace. He, he, gave, he came to bring peace for a particular people, for the people of God, for those with whom God is pleased. And that begs a very important question for us to consider this morning. With whom is God pleased? Who will receive this peace? In Isaiah 66, God declares, but this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. So as we close, I want to ask, is that you? you know, we've been working our way through this series, and maybe you've been here week after week, month after month, and you're, and you're learning from God's Word. Here's the question. Are, are you just adding more footnotes and scribbles and highlights? Like, is that your takeaway? Are you coming away from our time in the Word of God and in your personal study? Coming away, think of things like, oh, wow, those Israelites were so impatient. Or, wow, those kings were a hot mess. Or even, wow, it's interesting how the Bible fits together. Is that all that's happening in our time in the Word of God? Or are you like the one in Isaiah 66, trembling as He reveals who He is and who we are and our great need? Is it changing your life? One old preacher said, it's a small thing how you mark your Bible. But it is of all importance that it mark you. As we open the Word week after week and press in, are you changing? Is the Spirit of God taking this sword and, and cutting out the things in your life, the branches that don't bear fruit, doing the, the painful surgery that we require week after week after week as we're changed into the image of Christ? These are the ones to whom He looks. Those who are humble and contrite and tremble at His Word. What is He teaching us in His Word over the course of even this series? He's teaching us that we're sinners, who need a Savior? Boy, we saw that in week one, didn't we? Back in the garden. We're descendants of Adam. 
and Eve. All of us sin. All of us have done wrong, thought wrong, said wrong. We are sinners who need a Savior. We are under a curse. And we need to be blessed. We are rebels who need a king. God has revealed His way to us and time after time in our lives, isn't it true that we have said, I know God's way, but I'm going to do it my way. What does that make me? A rebel. And I need to surrender to a king. We are lost sheep who need a shepherd. Anybody feel that today? Lost. Wandering. Straying. I know I'm straying. I know I'm not where I need to be. We need a shepherd to come alongside us and pull us back in. And now through this promised Son, God is offering peace to those with whom He is pleased. Do you want to please Him this morning? Here's step one. I would encourage you today, in humility, agree with His assessment of you. Agree with His assessment of your sin, of your rebellion, of your need. We, we call that confessing our sins. Saying, God, you're right. As He holds up a mirror to my life, He's right. I'm a rebel. I'm a sinner. I need a Savior. Confess your sin. Agree with His assessment of you. But then, put your trust in the provision that He has provided. He has sent His Son. And it was not for no reason. It wasn't just a gimmick that God sent his, his child to Bethlehem that day that we sing these songs and celebrate this season. The child came because we needed the child. We needed God to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. That's why He's come. God saw you in your need, your great need, you straying sheep, you rebel against the King. He saw you and He said, I'm going to send a Savior for you. Put your trust in God's provision. Put your trust in Jesus Christ. Repent and believe. This is the one with whom he is pleased. And this is the one who will receive the peace that Jesus has come to lead us into. And so if you haven't done that, then this morning I'm going to pray a prayer. And I just invite you to just quietly pray along with me in your heart. Let's pray together. God, I confess that I'm a sinner. I confess that I have done wrong, that I've thought wrong, that I've spoken wrong. Lord, I confess that there were things that I should have done that I didn't do, and things I should not have done that I did do. Lord, and I, I agree with what your word says, that the wages of sin is death. I agree with what your word says, that I am a sinner, and therefore I need a Savior. And God, I agree and I believe what your word says, that you so loved the world, you so loved me, that you sent your only son, that whoever believes in him would have life, have life everlasting. So God, I believe that Jesus Christ took my sin and he paid for it on the cross. That this child in a manger, this child of promise, grew up to do what I could not do, that he lived the perfectly obedient life that I could not live. And then in a mystery that I'll never understand, in an act of love that I can't even put words to, for, for no reason other than your abounding love and holiness, he took my sin in his flesh and he died that horrific death on the cross so that my sin could be washed away. I believe that. Even as it blows my mind and exceeds my comprehension, I believe that. Help my unbelief, God. Therefore, I am a child of God. 
Therefore, I am a lamb that's been brought back into the fold. Therefore, I am forgiven. Therefore, I am free. Therefore, I will live forever. Therefore, the curse doesn't have a hold on me anymore. I've been brought into your blessing. And death won't be the end of me because I will raise again just as Christ did. I believe that, God. Lord, and I pray today that for us as a people, Lord, maybe there's somebody here maybe who just prayed that prayer for the first time. God, I I pray for them, Lord. Grow them, bring people alongside them to walk with them. But Lord, I thank you that this, this is a truth that every single one of us needs to be reminded of again and again. So quickly we try to walk in our own strength. Lord, so quickly we, we put our trust in ourself, our abilities, our efforts. Lord, I pray that you'd humble us today. Lord, bring us back to the manger, bowing with the shepherds and declaring that this is the, the long-awaited Savior that we need. Lord, I love you. Lord, we love you. I pray that you'd be pleased with us as we respond. I pray that we would be those people in Isaiah 66 who are humble and contrite and who tremble before your word. So Lord, we we can't do this in our own strength. We ask for the help of your spirit. Even now, would your spirit convict? Even now, would your spirit heal? Lord, I pray for those who perhaps are in a season of discipline. Lord, who perhaps, Lord, they're living in a time when things are being stripped away and they're feeling very much like the Israelites were when they were surrounded. Lord, I thank you that you use these seasons to refine us, to sharpen us. And you speak to us in these seasons. Lord, if somebody right now is sitting in that darkness, God, I pray that you would attune their ear to hear your voice. I pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Worship team, would you lead us?